Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre with Mia Z. We have another week of Linux kernel related news, so we can kick off with that. So this news was that the Linux kernel has become a CNA or CVE numbering authority, which is pretty big news because obviously the Linux kernel is pretty big in the ecosystem. And them becoming a CNA for the Linux kernel now means that other CNAs can't assign CVEs for kernel issues. So the Linux kernel maintainers will have full say over what is and isn't a CVE. So and this is not entirely full say. You do have the CNA of last resort where like if they disagree that this is not a security issue, if the kernel or like the current CNA would disagree, like you can still approach them to get a CVE assigned. And like there's basically a way for dealing with the CNA that doesn't necessarily agree with the assignment. There's still kind of an option to go about that. But yeah, on, on the whole, like when I first read this news, I was saying it was a pretty positive thing, kind of like with Curl also becoming a CNA, taking over control, not allowing those same kind of sloppy bugs to kind of get reported as CVs or having at least a bit of an option with that. But maybe that's not quite the case. Yeah, so this has been pretty controversial because Linux developers in the past, including Linus himself, has had some pretty controversial security opinions. Mainly the fact that security issues should be treated the same as any other issue not given special treatment, which I think much of the security community disagrees with. And because of this, there's concern that Linux becoming the CNA is effectively... Um, in my notes, I have I have either intentionally or not, but actually it seems like it is more intentional, uh, going to cripple the value or meaning of the CVE system as a whole. As Linux isn't just any random CNA, right? Like, as I said, Linux is a pretty big player in the security space. So there's been some discussion on this. A big driver of the discussion has been uh, GR security, which isn't too surprising. And it's been interesting to follow. So yeah, there's history here. One thing I wanted to bring up was a past article and this is kind of where i was getting into with intent so there was an article that was posted a few years ago and there was also a presentation given by uh greg crow hartman and it's titled what to do about cde numbers and they talk about the number of problems with cve um they have problems with it like being used to pad resumes basically not liking the motivation that is behind cdes and the way that they can be assigned for non-issues or issues that the kernel developers don't really deem issues, things like that. I think that's more of the concern. So yeah, there was a presentation given, and on slide 58, uh, basically there's this slide titled How to Fix CVEs, and the bullet points say ignore them, burn them down, and create something new. Uh, so that was from a slides? few years ago. Do you have a link yeah, to the actually, slides? Uh, yeah, I'll bring it up here. Now this page is a little bit annoying to scroll to, so I'm not sure how... Easily, you'll be able to get to slide 58. Scroll all the way to it. Yeah, and unfortunately, the way the text is rendered doesn't play well with Control F, but... Um, yeah, I got it. Yeah. So it literally says, like, ignore them, burn them down, create something new. So the Linux kernel devs don't seem to vibe with the CVE system as a whole. So initially, my thoughts were kind of that people might be overreacting, and I doubted that Linux developers were trying to intentionally sabotage the CVE system. But with slides and posts like this that does actually seem to hold some water. So the worry is that the CVE system for Linux is going to be watered down. It's going to include fixes that are not security related. Uh, and this is where the GRSEC stuff kind of comes up. Uh, I'll bring up the tweet for that. Uh, so Brad Spengler said, Greg told people to look at the GSD list or uh, global security database list for an idea of what they're going to claim CVEs for. This is the stuff that they're proud of for working on for three years. 
You don't have to look at it long at all to find complete garbage. It should have been filtered out day one. And the image he posts is basically a typo fix. Like, obviously, no security impact. It's just, like, renaming a variable. And there's some other ones, too, like, that you would not really consider security issues in the modern day. Like, Naldi references and things like that. Though Those are a little bit more understandable. Yeah, but, I clicked yeah. through uh, several of these, actually. And I've just brought up the one I believe Brad Spangler. Yeah, it's the same one. So I've just brought that up here where it's, yeah, uh, just renaming uh, whatever. But... And some of these do come off a little bit more legitimate. There's denial of service. But as you just kind of click through, you know, here's Stack Overflow. So, like, some of these would generally be considered a... Like, if they were a CV, you would generally consider it's a legitimate CV. And when I say legitimate CV, I am reminded of, actually, our very first episode, where we kind of played that game where CV or no CV... CVs. Yes, yeah. um, kind of had that feeling because there have been problems with CV. I don't disagree with any of, well, I'd have to go double check exactly what all was said, the presentation. I was watching it just before we were doing this recording, but I don't largely disagree with like the problems with CV. There are huge problems. There is a lot of people using it as like resume padding. And so the bugs really aren't like they're very questionable issues. But the whole purpose, though, was just like, you know, people can kind of track that there are these bugs and have some sort of tracking going on that a bug exists that may be a security concern. And so going through this, like, yeah, most of these are bugs that do exist. CV kind of has the connotation of having or being more security oriented. So security bug and then NVD usually takes the CV numbers and adds like the CVSS scoring to it. And, you know, with something like this, so the one I just happened to have up here is GSD 2023 uh, 109.623. It is a fixed or fixed runtime PM underflow warnings. What CVSS score would you rate that? You couldn't like, really give it one. Exactly. Like, I'm just pulling up, I guess, I'm pulling up CVSS version 3 here because that was the first link they had, not new V4. But, like, you know, attack vector. What's the attack? Or even if you go with the CIA, like, is confidentiality violated? No. Is there any integrity violation or even availability, like, what is it? Availability because somebody's going to read the log and it's going to take extra time. And so you might use up all their resources and mental bandwidth, causing a mental breakdown availability. Like oh, there's a non-impact, basically. Yeah, there, there's a non-impact. And so one of the common arguments that I kind of see being made is, well, we don't always know what a security bug is. And can we prove that this is not? A security bug and even this bug like you can make an argument that some so one of the other things you don't know how the kernel is being used somebody could be doing some weird stuff with it that makes it a security issue and so like maybe somebody out there was like actually running something through this area and like if that warning appeared they knew they were an administrator or something and this suddenly has a security impact as an auth bypass in this other application because of that dependency I can't imagine that's truly the case, of course, but like you don't know what other people are doing. So, so this like, kind of leads this... nicely into a tweet that I wanted to bring up by uh, Namazo, which is unless a bug is provably not a security issue, it's better to consider it one than not to. 
I don't know why people are pushing so hard against labeling maybe security issues. Maybe we shouldn't even label real ones until they're exploited in the wild. Where is the bar? Um, which is kind of the crux of what we're talking about. It, this um, is the thing I was actually thinking of. And Dax has a reply underneath there. You wouldn't ignore a crack in a dam just because it's not leaking yet. Fortunately, X won't let us view without logging in. But uh, that was just kind of a, I think, a succinct way of putting it, which is a very fair point. Like, I don't disagree with the idea of even labeling possible security issues because i think we've talked about that in the past where certain issues maybe get ignored because we don't know if they're exploitable or not and so like it, it's a really fair point and it did kind of leave me questioning like how far do you push on where is the bar we don't really have a bar like cv doesn't really have much of a bar and even though there's a lot of interpretation using, yeah and i was just using cvss is like what about that but that one that's not part of cv you know, NVD adds those. And even that, like, I have my issues with CVSS because it really doesn't capture good information in terms of being relevant to the application. It tends to be relevant more to, like, the running environment and how software is being run rather than the software itself. So, like, yeah, it's got We've a different focus. commented on CVSS scores before. Like, it misses a lot of nuance. I really don't like them generally. Like, we somebody don't have a solution either. No, I know there's not really a better alternative, but um, my biggest problem with CVSS is because it does give a score and like, oh, 9.8 big number sort of thing. People, especially people that are newer to the security space, they put a lot of stock in that. They're like, oh, how do I find a 9.8 or a 10 CVSS vulnerability? And it's like, well, really, like you probably shouldn't even be looking at those scores because they just... They don't mean much. You know, maybe it can kind of sort of give you a general idea, but in a lot of cases, it's missing too much information to really offer much value. Well, so I think in a lot of cases, it works too. Like, I don't want to downplay it, does work for like a reasonable subset. It's just, it sort of saying like it does miss certain contexts that is more application specific to this application. Certain things do have more of a priority that isn't captured. Oh. Yeah, and even those things it can kind of capture on, again, there's that interpretation where it's like certain people are going to view it as more impactful than others uh, in like a given aspect, like integrity or something like that. Like, So yeah, it, it's kind of hard to define where that bar is. So on that tweet specifically with, you know, unless a bug not is proven not to be a security issue, it should be treated as one. I can understand that viewpoint and that would be ideal. The problem with that is who's going to go through all the work of proving all these issues to be security related or not, especially for the more context specific problems. I mean, I feel uh, certainly like that not kernel should be developers for Linux, for example. See, but I think that should be the uh, CNA who's the term. Well, okay. Maybe not the CNA is kind of too vague of an answer because then that's the, you know, the CNA of last resort, like for everything. So maybe not, but when somebody's taking this authority over their own CV numbering, I do feel like they should be performing some of that filtering. And it feels like in this case, they're not. Like, it's not that they're taking maybe security issue, maybe not in reporting them. They seem to be taking things, said the the GSD list here that we're looking at. Like, you know, I think one, it's mentioned as, you know, take a look at that for an example. But this is the global security database. Like, this is another security thing that I actually kind of like more than CVE that they're reporting all these things on yeah um, it's almost can. it's just echoing commits into security advisories like 
Yeah, I it's mean, it is. The, noise, right? the summary is the commit title. The details are the commit title and this is an automated blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like it's, it's not adding much in there to the description because, yeah, it is automated. I don't know. I mean, I can agree with the idea that if the kernel, if they planned to do like some filtering on this and be like, yeah, this seems like a security issue, seems like a maybe security issue. Fine, like they can make that call for their own software. Somebody disagrees. There is that other approach to do that. But this seems more like. Let's just throw everything in there. And that's kind of in line a little bit ago. Spectre was mentioning the presentation that was given in 2019, where it was burn it down. What was said at that point with burn it down was that, so I think I've got the link to the presentation here also. Let me pull that up really quickly. We're not going to listen to the presentation. I just want to add into the show notes. Add as a reference for anyone who wants to check it out. Yeah. yeah. At uh, twenty eight twenty eight in this video, you have him talking about burn it down, and the idea is like take every patch in the kernel and ask for a CV. In twenty nineteen, this was the idea how how to burn down CVs. In twenty twenty four, they're doing this, so like that kind of gives me a hint about motive here, that maybe this isn't as like just differing opinions as I initially thought coming into it. Maybe it's possible that Greg has changed his opinion on it and, like, he actually believes kind of this view is, like, being the correct approach. At the same time, this kind of shows me that he first thought about this, at least, as a burn it down, as how to fix CVs by burning it down, by making every patch a CV. Given so the stuff I I've don't read, think... I think it is acting on that intent, to be honest. Like I said, it's been several years, so I can give him the benefit of the doubt being like maybe something has changed that has convinced him on that. I haven't seen anything to convince me of that, but I'll at least give like a positive judgment on like the possibility. But it just kind of comes down to, you know, it, there may be something kind of some other intent to why they're doing this beyond just security and tracking all the bugs. Um, because I mean, like, let's fundamentally, be, let's call it what it is. If you're flooding CVE listings that generally people use to make decisions on whether or not to patch systems for security issues, and you're pushing a lot of noise into that, like that's not offering benefit to people who use the CVE system. Like, let, no, let's not I, pretend it, that it is. That that's a um, fair point. Like, it's. I think generally doing this is only doing damage. Oh um, yeah. You know, it's nice for them to track things. And it's kind of tying back. I was mentioning that, you know, CV was just for tracking that the fact, hey, these bugs kind of existed. You know, if you don't consider it a security bug, you know, or you don't consider it necessary to worry about in your system and your environment, then you don't patch for it. It's just a very big change in how kernel CVs have worked in the past. And it doesn't seem like it is for the benefit to me. As much as I want to agree with tracking all the possible bugs, uh, you know, without them actually doing any filtering themselves, it seems, or minimal filtering. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, you, you pretty much touched on exactly what I was going to say, was that if there was actually a interest in the security side from Linux, then they would have people tasked on doing that work of assessing the security impact of various patches and vulnerabilities and things. And we just know the kernel developers aren't interested in doing that, which, you know, fair enough. Like 
that's a fair philosophy for them to have. But but then don't become then, the CNA. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it does make the CVE system more meaningless. You know, it's like an alarm that constantly goes off. Eventually, you don't care anymore. You can't filter through all the noise. That being said, so we've mostly just been commenting on some of the opinions that we've seen and, and what's been happening. But uh, getting into my own views on it, I will say I don't know why there seems to be all this sermonizing suddenly for the CVE system. I've seen some people that are crying bloody murder on it, and it's like, again let's call it like it is, the CVE system sucks. It's not really a good system. And it has seemed to have been getting progressively worse. I don't think basing your security or patches off of CVEs purely is a great idea. And so the burn it down crowd, like, I mean, yeah, I get it. I, I kind of get that side of it too. The problem is there's nothing really great to replace it right now. We kind of commented on GSD earlier, but even that, that has kind of the same problem with a lot of noise making its way into it, right? It does, but at the very least, GSD is something we can build automated systems around, like, for real. CVE is just text, freeform text, like you don't know anything going on. You have to kind of parse everything out. You know, at least you look at a random GSD, you get metadata information like you know at least is this official if there's exploit code in theory you would get all of the information yeah like this is parsable you can build a lot better around this sort of system and i think another important thing is this is a database or not a database you know it's like a git repository it's public you can see the changes so somebody changes something you can see the history there you can make changes you can put your own pull request here it, so that fixed some of the issues with like CV being closed, being hard to kind of get access to anything, to update anything, to fight something if you disagree with it or whatever. Like it does fix some of the issues, which is why I do like GSD. And at least as a system, yeah, it has a lot of things, but it is a lot. It's at least conceivable that you can do better parsing over this and the freeform data of CV that just hasn't really grown with modern tech in a sense yeah and uh there is that quote that i i do like which is perfect is the enemy of good like you're not going to have a perfect system gsd i think does make sense over cve because of the things that you mentioned so i don't think we should discount it entirely the other thing i wanted to bring up is there are alternative advisory systems like zdis for example and i think this move by linux will add more value to those areas but as of the moment, CVE is kind of the de facto standard for applying patches. And unfortunately, a move like this will probably push for more name vulnerabilities. <laughs> so I can't I can't wait. At for least that. when it comes uh, to Linux. Uh, yeah, for Linux. Yeah. Um, like I could see people going more that route because I don't know. I mean, I guess you could still look up by CVE number. It's just a lot of CVs aren't as value, valuable anymore. I will say GSD does include CVs in it. Like if you have a CV, you could get the number through here. Like you could look up a CVE number through here also, and you'll find like the CV in GSD. So it is there. Like it is kind of a replacement um, that you could drop in and start using. But yeah, it's still has the issue with a lot of report numbers. And I think part of that problem, though, comes down to the fact that, like, you know, researchers also have kind of bumped up their numbers with bad reports. It's just that this is going on, like, a new scale, I guess. It's like, let's take a system that's already really messy and make it messier. And, you know... Yeah. That kind of move is not super productive, which is why I think 
the security researcher side has generally seen this as a spiteful move, uh, which I, I can see it, to be honest. So, yeah, I'm in a bit of an interesting position because I kind of see merit on both sides. I kind of resonate with kernel developers in being frustrated with the CVE system uh, and trying to take kind of a stand on it. Like CVE, like we, we've ragged on it on the podcast before. Although it does provide some benefits, like it, there's a lot of drawbacks to it, which, uh, you know, we, we've criticized. But on the other hand, like you said, I don't think Linux should have been made a CNA, a CNA sorry, uh, if they are going to go this route. And it's really questionable on MITRE's side of why they, like, it's not like Linux's views on CVEs were a secret. Right, their present like the pre that presentation was in 2019. They've made posts on LWN about it before. So, do did the people at Mitre just not do any background research on Linux and, and their views of the CVE system? Because I feel like it doesn't matter. I have to imagine they are an owner of a product that gets CVEs in it, and so you know they basically just have. They just had to you know, the right it. to claim like to be the CNA and go through that process. Um, I don't uh, know what enough. all the process is, but I can't imagine they're actually being all that judgmental about any of it. Like I have to but, imagine I mean, in a case like this, like it is significantly going to impact the, uh, you know, view of more CVs, CVs as a whole. for them. I mean, it's they have more CVs, you know, think about all those people who publish the stats like there were X number of CVs reported in you know 2023 or whatever like uh, yeah, 2024 is going to be a boost for vulnerabilities by <laughs> like those metrics like you know yeah. things are going crazy in 2024 and i want to touch on you mentioned kind of the sympathetic towards kernel developers and that is the thing like cvs like we've talked about generally how in security cvs have been misused but also like because of places only patching if they have like the cve fix or something that has meant that people have you know, made kind of some less than legitimate claims about a patch being a CVE fix just so they can get their things merged into like a stable kernel somewhere or something like that. So there are also those sorts of abuses that kind of make sense on the kernel side for not being terribly fond of this whole CVE process. I don't think we mentioned that at all, but just figured it was worth at least pulling out. Like there are kind of some aspects that are unique to the kernel or at least unique to the kernel compared to most places yeah i've seen a lot of one-sidedness i feel like especially against linux like i feel like a lot of the stuff i've seen around it has been dogpiling on linux and like i said like the cve is kind of a garbage system and i do understand uh, the perspective of linux kernel developers but yeah, I just I find it funny how much people have been <laughs> kind of martyring for CVE as if it was some golden system when, you know, it it, it hasn't been. Yeah, um, no, I'm, I would love to see like a nicer replacement for CVE, but it's not an easy thing to just solve. Yeah, like because it has to meet so many different needs, like it's been used in so many different ways. That it's like I like you kind of said with perfection. What was it? Perfect is the enemy of good. There we go. Yeah. Um, kind of like with that, there is no real like perfect system, but there might be some good systems we can come up with. 
Yeah. And in that sense, you know, maybe this move by Linux will have a positive impact overall over time. But for the maybe immediate Bernard future, right. maybe, yeah. But for the immediate future, uh, I think it's going to be our, like inarguably worse. Uh, yeah. it, it's going to make patching and sysadmining uh, more difficult than it already is. So, And maybe you know. it'll mean that you know, uh, someone in the security community needs to kind of step up and be that filter. In I made kind of a joke on Discord, like, buy ZDI stock. Because... <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, ZDI advisories just got more valuable. But. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, we should just clarify really quickly that that is kind of what ZDI selling point is. Uh, you might be familiar with them over like they run own to own and all of that, but they're kind of products that they'll also buy exploits and vulnerabilities from individuals. So we sometimes talk about as an option for bug bounty hunters who want to do more binary work because there aren't a lot of binary programs that are also like accessible as you're learning most of them are like you know microsoft's products or whatever that have a higher barrier zdi will pay for them and what they do with that is they have an advisory system that, you, that companies can get a subscription to to kind of know about vulnerabilities before they're disclosed and they do disclose them to the actual vendor so you know they could make money over kind of doing that sort of filtering too perhaps and having that as part of it i don't know how I mean, I could, you know, there would be a desirable aspect to that, but yeah, I just figured I should clarify really quickly what CDI does for those not familiar. Yeah, that's true. We mostly talked about Pondo, not so much CDI outside of like their blog posts or whatever, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how CVEs are impacted as a whole because uh, it will have an impact. Uh, there's been some interesting discussion on it. But I don't want to come down wholly on one side or the other because overall, you know, both sides sort of have merit. And it's it's been fun keeping track of it. There's There's been, like, different discussions, and I wanted to get the links together of everything that I'd seen and kind of structure it because, you know, everyone has different opinions on it, and a lot of them are, are valid. It's just a tricky problem overall to deal with. Yeah, like... In a large way, if they're going maliciously here, try and burn it down, maybe I'd say that that's a wrong position. But there are a lot of, like, very acceptable positions being held across this. Um, yeah. Like, on both sides, there are still acceptable positions. So it's not like one side is right and the other side's clearly wrong and that's just that. There's a lot of nuances because it is a difficult problem. Yeah. So uh, let's get into some vulnerabilities. So getting into our first issue, we have a double free in uh, libdicom for dealing with dicom images, which we have talked about somewhat recently. Um, Z, I think you'd mentioned, do you remember what episode we talked about it recently on? I don't remember what episode it was on. Um, shouldn't be too hard to find, though. Yeah, okay. But while you do that, I'll go through the issue. So it's sort of your classic double free style issue due to error handling. So for this, we have the GitHub pull request up, which includes a POC and everything. And the main issue is when a duplicate tag is found when you're inserting into a data set with this DCM data set insert call, it'll have an error case where it'll destroy or free that duplicate element because, you know, you don't want to have the duplicate tags and it'll return false. The problem is the caller of data set insert parse meta element create in this case will also destroy the element if that insert call returns false. And so you have kind of this classic double free where, you know, you have multiple error cases that are doing the same thing. So, yeah, I mean, that's the most 
classic way double free happens because their handling is hard didn't know and you have to go across calls like that remembering who's got the life like the who owns the lifetime of that object as you pass it around that was actually a responsibility yeah yeah that was actually the documentation that was part of the patch over this was like it, they documented like this takes ownership of it in this case or you know when it frees you know you have to you get ownership of it the prior documentation made it sound like it kept ownership like even when it failed so they had updated that but yeah it's also that lifetime aspect which you know, is at least always worth considering but yeah air paths always seem to have i mean not always but commonly seem to have these sorts of bugs where they just struggle to keep in mind who needs to clean up what and that can be a bit of a struggle at times especially because keeping track of ownership and stuff like that is something that you can kind of do as you're actively writing the function as that developer but as soon as you have some other developer that's working there or even somebody that worked on it coming back to it at some later point it can be very difficult to keep track of everything in your head and kind of get back up to speed which is why in more mature code bases, you'll see like block comments that are describing all of this, like which function has which responsibility for cleanup and uh, or locking or something like that. So yeah, when that's not documented well, it's easy to have issues like this, even if it's just one level of indirection, like or uh, like one call level. But you can have this issue across multiple call levels too. Like we've definitely seen that before, and uh, yeah, so relatively simple issue, but it's sort of interesting that it exists in the the file format parsing like this um not sure how easy it would really be to exploit you know generally when you have double freeze you want to have like a good reallocation primitive and such which i'm not sure how viable that would be here but yeah, double free is generally a pretty powerful attack class so i'm sure there is some way to leverage it first i did find the episode so that was 221 exploiting healthcare servers with polyglot files it was the explaining healthcare servers with polyglot files topic that we last kind of talked about DICOM. Uh, when it comes to the exploitation of this one, so they do get the you know, the double free detected warning. So if this is just running linearly, no other threads going on, you're probably going to have a hard time exploiting this just because you can't get any like you can't get a delayed free or like get something else freed in the middle there to bypass that check, which I believe in this case is just going to be, was the last thing freed the same as this thing freed? If so, it's a double free. Like you're not going to be able to get around that. It'd be um, hard to interleave. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, exploitability, questionable, but you might be able to get something out of it. Uh, if you have something else running in there, because if you do get the double free, like assuming you can do the interleaving, you can get that primitive for the double free. I mean, I don't know the objects here, but like double free is a pretty powerful primitive to have because you can basically, yeah, it's like use after free, but you control like both sides of it. So it can be a very powerful primitive to have. Seems like it is reading a lot of data from the user, so your information's getting into memory, getting into the heap. So likely a decent bit of control in there over some objects. So yeah, feels like it would be exploitable as long as you can bypass that double free detection. Although it is an image, I don't know about like ASLR being on or any of that stuff. So like there are some other considerations, but the double free itself feels like it would be a very useful primitive.
All right, and getting into our next issue, we also have a post on Cyclus on buffer overflows reported in Kitty, which is a Windows SSH and Telnet client. And I'll let Z get into this one. Yeah, and kind of similar. This one is not a very crazy bug. It's a pretty classic sort of thing. Actually, it's one bug class that we were never very fond of covering, which is a string copy, unbounded string copy into... Um, sorry, the code here isn't showing off looking very nice for me, but a unbounded string copy into a fixed size buffer. Uh, so let me pull up the kind of relevant lines of code. Yeah, the so, very 90s style code. <laughs> yeah, I, we've seen we've seen some of the pro I think last time we looked at the escape code handling stuff, we saw some kind of similar code there. So seems to be the style that they like to copy, I guess, maybe. Either way, you've got, so basically, Kitty, you know, it's going to, if it sees a ANSI escape sequence, little, so this is how, like, in a terminal, you'll get color by putting an escape code, put the code saying, like, hey, change the colors to this, and it just has, like, a code for doing that, and has a variety of codes here, you can see this nice if-else thing that's kind of looking at what the characters are there to determine what the command itself was one of them is this underscore underscore dt which is to duplicate a session or duplicate a terminal and what it's going to do is it's going to you know if it sees that as the command it'll create a couple stack variables or stack arrays for the host and for user host being 1024 bytes user 256 bytes It'll create that, and then right down here, it'll do a string copy from the command line itself, or the host, but, or, sorry, but it'll do the uh, string copy into the host, and the user, it uses the location of the host, plus I for, where'd they get I? Ah, oh, I got the position, sorry. I had to, yeah, I don't like the formatting of this code, especially with this line here, doing this uh, 2601, doing, like, two things on one line. Uh, anyway, it's really quite terrible to read. Yeah. yeah. It, well, I had to go back there. Like, where did they assign I? Just double check. Yeah. And they've got this pause function, which I assume is going to be your position. So they can't even name it, right? They've got to use the shorthand there. Anyway, it's an unbounded string copy. So that line on the terminal can be, you know, as long as it wants to send for the most part. So your string copy is copying into these buffers that are bounded. They are not as long as you can ever need that. You can just give a long enough host and a long enough user to overflow those stack buffers. And so stack based buffer overflow. Do you recall any discussion in here about like canaries or anything? So I was just trying to find the exact place that I'd seen, but I'm pretty sure for exploiting this, they didn't actually have to actually, no, sorry, never mind. Never mind what I was going to say. I was going to say, I didn't think they had to subvert control flow because I thought there was something else on the stack that they could hit, but their POC does set the program counter to like AAA. So they are hitting the instruction pointer ultimately in their POC. I mean, it's a kind of fun issue just because of where it exists in the TTY. So it's like, you know, you connect to a server and uh, I think their ex-wife, one of their choices there was to print this out during like the message of the day printout. So like, you know, you could have some fun attack styles on that. It's just like, it's an interesting area for the issue because you are yeah, they attacking. You could, uh, you could put the exploit payload into like your bash RC file. That way, you know, every time the message of the 
day or is this late or whatever the exploit fires put it into the bash rc file just for yourself so every time you connect it owns you and does something cool in your terminal and then you're like yeah you know you show your friend hey you know when i open this when i ssh into my server it opens calc um you could kind of have some fun with that i i think but the bug isn't super interesting. It's disappointing to see it in like this area just because I would kind of want like, you know, the SSH client here, you know, however they're kind of working this gets telnet client also, but you'd kind of want them to have some security sense, but it is a relatively low risk. Like this is the server you're connecting to attacking you. I usually, you know, SSH into servers that are generally not hostile to me. But that does also make it an interesting place where, like, if you're able to compromise, say, a corporate environment, I don't know why they'd be using Kitty, but if they were using something like that, or even just, like, in terms of other sorts of attacks, like, there are, you know, corporate environments where people have, like, very similar tooling. There are definitely ways that this could be, this sort of issue could be abused. But it generally this one in particular would be kind of obvious to anybody that isn't running the vulnerable system. It's like, what the heck is this output? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Kind of fun, I thought, but very straightforward issue. The most disappointing thing for me, really, was the fact that, and I kind of told you this before we started the episode, but Kitty is a newer code base. Uh, like, the first release of it, I believe, was in 2021. So, like I said, you got kind of this 90s style code, but it, it's actually not. It's actually fairly recent. So it's a little bit unfortunate seeing like stir copy and stuff being used in this way. It doesn't give you a lot of confidence in the code base, but uh, you know, that's just how it be, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they definitely You'll never very escape those easily. issues, obviously. Yeah. They, they could have very easily, you know, even used like the N variant of stir copy to give it some limitation. It's yeah. not like they don't know the size or something either. Like it is, they just allocated the buffer. It's very available it's right to them. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I kind of agree with that. But yeah, the vulnerabilities this week were fairly straightforward. Again, it was a bit of a tough week finding issues for. So, uh, yeah. So if you uh, have any, you know, we this. missed, send them on Discord. Let me know things because I definitely, you know, struggled this week a bit. Yeah. Uh, something that was cool, though, that we wanted to talk about was Trail of Bits. So this is a this was a couple weeks ago, so not super recent. Um, I only Trail just Bits, saw it because of Exploit Club uh, giving it yeah, a us. Yeah. So Trail of Bits had hosted uh, a LibAFL maintainer for their weekly internal lunch and learn session, which I didn't know these were a thing, really. And uh, I'll keep an eye out for any future ones. But this was kind of an interesting presentation that was given about fuzzing, particularly underutilized fuzzing strategies. So the first 12 minutes or so of the presentation are basically fuzzing 101 of where we are now, talking about the typical coverage guidance, sanitizers, some of the newer stuff that's come into play, like symbolic execution. But ultimately, uh, capitalizing on the fact that we are still relying on coverage for instrumentation and introspection, mainly. And the problem with that is the best coverage doesn't always mean it's the best at finding bugs. Just because you're getting coverage in an area doesn't mean you're finding the deeper issues and whatnot. And not yeah, only and that's a problem you... we've talked about quite a few times where yeah, you know, we'll... it's a difficult issue. 
you know, coverage based fuzzing is like feels like the best we've got, but it's not, not necessarily. It yeah, like and it's not even at least when we've talked about it, like it's not even that we're saying it's not the best it can be. It's just we don't have any other better options that we know of. Basically, like coverage is the best relationship we've been able to find for trying to uncover more bugs, but it's far from ideal. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what he's kind of capitalizing capitalizing on here. And also the fact that fuzzing is very geared towards finding memory corruption issues like your overflows and your use after freeze and things like that. But those aren't the only types of bugs that exist in applications. As we've talked about with memory safe languages and stuff being pushed more, there's also things like logic bugs. So not only do we need something better for instrumentation, but we also need better sanitization. We need to be able to sanitize for like access control issues, which he talks about some of the things that have been done for that, like differential oracles. I think we've covered some differential fuzzing papers in the past on the podcast, but that even that only really works for well-defined cases. So for like one example he points out is like regular expressions. Regular expressions are something that's hard to do this on because it's not super well defined on how something should behave. So there's going to be differences in implementations because of that. So yeah, it talks about some of those, uh, like trying to fuzz for more of the logical issues, but yeah, like there has been some work on that with trying to do differential and consistency oracles, but it doesn't really work that well with coverage guidance, basically like higher complexity oracles means that coverage is less useful as a metric and it can actually be worse at finding these bugs. Uh, he says it's not really cl clear exactly why because of the nature of fuzzing, you know, it's hard to nail things like that down. There's a lot of, it, it's inherently random. So it's hard to uh, narrow down the exact causes for that. But yeah, so kind of talking about the limitations of modern fuzzing and how they're trying to address that with libAFL. So at about 20 minutes in, they go into new ideas talking about the fact that with libAFL you can define observers and novelty functions to guide using things other than coverage. Uh, the way they demonstrate that is with a puzzle game, defining certain conditions of the game to try to solve puzzles better, um, which we've seen kind of games used for demonstrating coverage before too. Uh, you know, it's a nice example that's intuitive, even if you don't have a deep understanding of a particular uh, subsystem or area of security or whatever. So yeah, some kind of interesting work that's being done by LibAFL and trying to address some of the shortcomings of fuzzing, which, as he mentioned, we've talked about on the podcast before. Yeah, and when it comes through this post, one of the things I really appreciate about was actually that first 12 minutes that he glossed over that goes over just kind of how we got here with fuzzing, you know, kind of how things started off, what, what was introduced, and it's like, okay, well, here's this problem, now how do we kind of start to fix that, you know? run to an issue what you know run to a problem here how did we approach that and i think it's a really good overview i would often recommend the fuzzing book i think it's dot org or whatever but as like a resource to kind of get some basic fuzzing concepts in because it covers a lot of different types of fuzzing but i actually think this 12-minute video is a really good well not the video is longer but that 12-minute part um is a really good introduction just to the high level concepts of what you can do with fuzzing because it is so much more than just random input and it is more now than just the coverage guidance but there are these other concepts that apply that go in they go into kind of explaining a little bit more about guiding mutations sanitizers and scheduling i mean they don't go super deep on like scheduling they don't really touch on the grammar aspect 
And then, you know, kind of ending up with the property fuzzing where, you know, we're not dealing with crashes at all. Spectre was just explaining. I just thought that was a really good kind of start to the presentation and was kind of one of the things that first caught my eye when I was checking out the slides before I actually watched it. And then, yeah, getting into LibAFL, um, I had heard of LibAFL before. Hadn't super like in depth checked it out yet, but seeing the post and kind of talk about the game uh, a little bit before Spectre and I were kind of talking about like he would like to see a bit more of a practical sort of fuzzing rather than, you know, fuzzing the game. I've got the screenshot or video of the game up here where it's just pushing boxes around where he uses that as the example. But I thought it was a really nice example of just getting a different concept towards how you're going to fuzz, you know, not being the crash base and having this idea of the observers and the, I forget what term they use, but like the, the, goal the novelty states. functions. Yeah. Novelty function. And the, uh, I was actually thinking of like, I think the goal states or whatever, but, um, Oh having, yeah. Um, the states of the fuzzing pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. I like, talk about. <laughs> like having those ideas, it, they're concepts that are part of like the fuzz. If you're implementing a fuzzer, you are thinking about some of these things. Seeing it in like this very modular, pluggable way that seems that LibAFL is kind of going for is really interesting. Seeing it done with this thing that I would never really consider fuzzing the game like this or uh, for like solutions to the puzzle. That's just not really what I think of. So seeing it used there is like, well, what other areas could you fuzz or use this sort of random testing to eventually work your way into? Just, I don't know, seems like a, like it's not a very valuable use case of LibAFL, in my opinion. But to me, it was a decent showcase of what might be possible and, you know, to kind of open up your thinking about it, I guess. So, yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed the whole presentation. It does make me want to give LibAFL another look. Uh, it's an inspirational presentation. I will say that it makes you want to try out some of the some of the stuff they talk about and yeah look at libafl more which makes sense right that that was the goal of the presentation yeah so to, to elaborate a little bit on what z was talking about so i was kind of saying that i really enjoyed the first part of the presentation kind of adding on to what z was saying there i appreciated how they visualized mutations i feel like that's always been something that it's easy to just say mutation and talk about like, yo, yeah, you flip some bits and you do this and that, like, but actually visualizing the relationship with mutations and novelty, like, I thought that was really cool. That's something that's, I feel like a lot of things fail to do when they talk about fuzzing. So I feel like that was done really well. I was a little bit disappointed in the latter half of the presentation, though, where it goes into, like, they go into a lot of detail on this puzzle solving. And on the one hand, like, I can see how that's useful for demonstrating what they're talking about, right? Like I said, it's something where it's a simple game. You can see what the goal is and how you want to try to achieve that. And it's a good visualization aid. But I kind of wanted to see how it could be used in a more practical application. Because it's kind of easy to say, like, okay, we need better strategies of uh introspection and better metrics but the problem with that is those metrics are going to be tied to the application specifically so it's going to require a lot of effort on the part of the person writing the fuzzer to implement those oracles and those uh novelty checks and things like that so i kind of wanted to see how how that could be implemented on a given application to give you an idea of how easy that would be to apply on any application. Whereas I feel like with the game that wasn't really uh, explained too much, but 
yeah, I mean, overall, the the presentation is really cool. And like I said, it's inspirational. It, it gave me some ideas that I, I kind of want to uh, give a shot. And like Z said, I think LibAFL was talked about a little bit. Maybe it was it a CCC that I think it, they, there was talk about. Um, Possibly. But beyond I know that, there we haven't really been. seen much about it. Yeah, I know there have been some presentations about LibAFL. Uh, probably but it's relatively the same Yeah, I mean, it's been i think a few years at least like it has been around for a bit here uh let's take a look it's been in development yeah i see the dev container their repository here looks like it's the oldest thing or i guess there's a couple things here git ignores three oh no that's what's this the docker ignore is three years old so like it has been around for a few years and that feels about right like i did hear about it a little while back yeah, but of course, when it comes to adoption and actually build, building tooling around it, that's going to have some lag. Like, it's not going to be adopted immediately. And so I think the adoption is what they're trying to push for now and trying to, you know, get it more uh Just education, maybe even. Yeah. Uh, that it's an option. And yeah, this is, I uh, didn't mention it, but this is a project under AFL++. That's a good show, yeah maybe kind of worth like it's not a complete offshoot from everything else yeah so did want to give it a quick cover because like c said like especially the first half of it i feel like is a really good summary of how fuzzing has evolved from you know just random input from dev random or something into quite a useful tool nowadays but also talking about the shortcomings of it and how we can try to address those going forward so presentation is really cool like i said it's inspirational i recommend anyone who is into the kinds of topics that we cover on the binary podcast i think it will be interesting to you so feel free to check it out and like i said i wasn't really aware of these luncheon kind of presentations from trail of bits but now i am and uh maybe we'll cover more of them going forward because they seem pretty cool yeah, trail of bits has a pretty nice uh like uh channel and stuff they have array of content yeah yeah they, they put out some good stuff for sure and i will just mention these slides um that will be in the show notes they do include speaker notes which honestly looking at them right now it looks like they basically have like everything that was said in there as a transcript so or at least on some slides the slide i was just looking at had a bunch but now as i'm clicking through more i see less so maybe i was just really lucky on the slide i had clicked on yeah, that's a, that's actually kind of unfortunate that I called that out and then don't see it on any other slide. Regardless, the slides are very, like, parsable, and even on their own, yeah. they stand up pretty well. Yeah, yeah they, they do. But yeah, that's all the topics we have for this week, so unless you have any last-minute parting thoughts, see, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, No parting thought, or no, I'll, I'll give you one parting thought, and that is just, like I mentioned, had kind of a rough time with topics this week, so... If you guys know any blogs that I've like maybe never covered or something and maybe don't know about, feel free to drop on, you know, in our Discord and interesting links or message me or whatever, because, you know, it feels like things are drying up a little bit, but it is kind of the season where things do that. I feel like every kind of midwinter we kind of have those issues. Yeah, that seems to be a period of time when a lot of people burn out and such uh, for whatever reason. Just yes. not a great time of the year. <laughs> Yeah, stuck inside research. with the cold or whatever, less sign, at least on our hemisphere. 
But uh, yeah, so that's a good note to end on. So as always, thanks everyone who tuned in. Previous episodes can be found on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And yeah, join the Discord and Twitter and uh, leave any links that you think are interesting that we might have missed in the links discussion channel. And with that said, we'll see you next week.